Welcome to Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We'll help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We'll share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Kate. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. I'm Margaret. In this episode, we will be talking about the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Jim Dethmer, Diana Chapman, and Kaylee Warner Klemp. If you were to go to Amazon and read the blurb, this is what you would find at the beginning. You'll never see leadership the same way again after reading this book. These 15 commitments are a distillation of decades of work with CEOs and other leaders. They are radical or provocative for many. They have been game changers for us and for our clients. We trust that they will be for you too. Unconscious leadership can deliver short-term results, but the costs of living and leading unconsciously are great. Fear drives most leaders to make choices that are at odds with healthy relationships, vitality, and balance. This fear leaves a toxic residue that won't be as easily tolerated in an increasingly complex business environment. Conscious leadership offers the antidote to fear. Once you learn and start practicing conscious leadership, you'll get results in the form of more energy, clarity, focus, and healthier relationships. You'll have more fun, be happier, experience less drama, and be more on purpose. Your team will get results as well. They'll be more collaborative, creative, energized, and engaged. They'll solve issues faster, and once resolved, the issues won't resurface. Drama and gossip will all but disappear, and the energy and resources that fueled them will be redirected towards innovation and creativity. Any one of these commitments will change your life. All of them together are revolutionary. What I like about this book is that it is a book you can read once and get a useful conceptual overview, and you can also use the 15 Commitments as a skill-by-skill practice. The 15 Commitments are about the context of conversation. The content of conversation changes with every specific conversation that you're having. What lies at the heart of this book is a commitment to self-awareness, truth-telling, and leading from the world as it is not the world as we want it to be. The foundation of conscious leadership is telling the truth to ourselves and then striving for what the authors call above-the-line leadership. Above-the-line leadership is open, curious, and committed to learning, and below-the-line leadership is closed, defensive, and committed to being right. With that, I just sort of want to launch into that question about what is valuable about this concept of above-the-line leadership and below-the-line leadership. Thoughts? Well, I have an initial thought about above the line and below the line leadership. The first thing that strikes me about it as valuable is that it is a judgment-free model. It does not posit that leaders who are operating below the line are wrong or bad or should judge themselves in any way, but rather that awareness of where you are as a leader above or below the line is not only the first step, but it's in fact the most important step. Owning when you are operating below the line is as important and if not more important than understanding how to get above the line. So there isn't a forced sense of if you're below the line, hurry up and get above the line. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that and just start with how much I enjoyed reading this book. I just kind of kept agreeing with it, kept saying like, I'm so glad to read this. And for me, it was so many of these concepts that I think so many of us 
subscribe to and try to teach students and clients about the way it walks you through and says, and this is what it looks like. And this is hard. This is an ongoing process and this is hard. So yes, you can absolutely subscribe to it say that you believe it, but know that the practice itself and your own evolution of being able to stay above the line, being able to notice when you're below the line, and then being able to make that conscious effort to move above the line is hard work. Yeah. One of the things that I love about the above the line and below the line is the way that they introduce it in some of their courses, going into a room and putting a horizontal line on the whiteboard and saying, are you above the line or below the line? No explanation, just asking, are you above the line or below the line? And the way that the first level of self-awareness is that most of the people in the room intuit that above the line is somehow better than below the line. And therefore they find a way to rationalize and explain that they are above the line without having been told what the line is. And that this realization that they do that is sort of the first step to the point that they make that self-awareness is so crucial and so hard. And it's not until they've done that that they then start talking about what they mean by above the line and below the line leadership. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's powerful for me with this model is that, of course, the book talks about 15 commitments, which we're going to get into. But this idea that if you are above the line, you are making a commitment probably feels intuitive to many leaders who read this book, go through a workshop, what have you, that, okay, I have to commit to being above the line. What I love is that there is also a commitment when we're below the line. So the way that they detail out the fact that when you're below the line, you're not just passively moving through the world, you're actually committing to something different, something different from what is above the line. And that puts above and below the line in, in a totally different perspective from, from what I might have guessed, which is that below the line is no commitment and above the line is commitment. Whereas in reality, there are different commitments on either side of the line. And uh, as, as I read through the book, what I loved doing was checking in with myself, for instance, on wow, is that what I want to be committed to? Is that what it means to be below the line? It means that I'm actively uh, choosing this thing. And it's, and it's, it's really eye-opening to, to look at it that way um, because it puts leaders at choice to where they want to be and what they want to choose to commit to. Passivity is not an option. You can't just say, well, I don't care and therefore I'm below the line. You are making a choice. And you're right, when you see that on the page, it's a lot easier to say, wait a second, those aren't the commitments I want to make. So what do I need to do to move myself above the line? Yeah, there's that piece about what are the unconscious commitments that we're making by framing it for us as a choice and a commitment it actually empowers us to choose otherwise. One of the things they talk about early on is that a commitment is not something you say to yourself. It's something that you observe in your results. So a lot of the descriptions of below the line, if they're unconscious, you might notice in your results. So I commit to being right or I commit to blaming others. Most of us don't think of ourselves as committed to being right or committed to blaming others. But if we notice in our behavior that we're not taking responsibility and that we're blaming others for all of the things that are going on, then we can become conscious. 
Nithya, you alluded to this earlier that they talked about it mattering more that you know whether you're above the line or below the line. They actually hammer that point home pretty hard. What are your thoughts about that? I definitely agree to a very large extent. We talked earlier about the word commitment evoking choice and willingness and free will and all of these things. And I think awareness unlocks that willingness and choice. It may be counterintuitive to think, well, gosh, now I know I'm operating below the line in all of these different ways. What's valuable about staying here? To me, what's valuable about staying there even for a little bit before shifting is understanding what our own behaviors are when we're below the line. Because I love how they detail out what a lot of the behaviors can look like for each of the commitments when you're operating below the line, but we're also all unique individuals and that can look different for each of us. I like this idea of when leaders are super self-aware that they happen to be below the line to then simmer in that for a second and say, okay, what am I doing? What's happening here? What are the results that are coming out of this kind of behavior? Because then over time, you start to notice when that's happening and shifting and moving above the line becomes easier when you know what below the line really looks like for you. And it's also possible through awareness to understand the impact on others. What's the impact on our teams? What's the impact on just the general environment? What energy is created when we're below the line? I think that's where a lot of the powerful learning is and why awareness matters so much. One of the things that I find interesting here is below the line is fear-based. And so if we notice when we fall below the line, if we're going along happily above the line, and then we notice that we've become below the line, it gives us an opportunity to ask how fear is activating. What are the situations that we are concerned about? Are they real? Do we really need to worry about them? Because sometimes that's the first time we realize that we're afraid. So there are 15 commitments. I don't know about you guys, but when I first heard about this book, I was like, 15 is a lot to manage. What's your reaction to the fact that there's a lot in here? I think it's aspirational. They do definitely build on each other. My instinct is that as you pay more attention to one and then another and then another, that you build a bit of a foundation and then there's something new in the next one. There's habit building in there of being aware and making choices that help you then kind of say, okay, so now if I were to focus on commitment six, what does that mean? But I've already been practicing building habits. It also obviously doesn't have to be done in a linear sense. So it's not that you go through one through 15 necessarily in that order. These give you a good framework to say, okay, you know, and as I look at these, when am I aware that I'm below the line and what's really going on there? And is it more of a scarcity situation? So maybe I should skip and let's spend some time exploring commitment 12. Or is it overworking being too much in effort and struggle? Well, let's take some time and look at commitment number nine. Yeah, I would agree. And that was my reaction when I saw the 15 was it's a lot, but they also go hand in hand with just a way of seeing the world. I happen to think even small shifts are sometimes big shifts, even just moving from a place of not taking responsibility to taking responsibility or going from a gossipy environment to committing to a no gossip environment. These small things that are behavioral can shift our way of being. So it's kind of that outside in approach that can make these a little more digestible 
digestible and not make it seem like 15 giant things. The authors, they make it very clear that this is a process and you don't have to even commit to the whole process. If you just want to make some improvements on some of these things, you're going to be making a shift in your effectiveness. They actually suggest start with the first two and then in batches of sort of two, three, or four, they break it down into a total of sort of five chunks. And so even in that, they've acknowledged that it's a lot. There's something really powerful to me. This is once again, sort of back in that no judgment zone about realizing if you just work on one of these for a bit, you're going to be making improvements in your effectiveness. So I'm really conscious of the fact that we've sort of alluded to a whole bunch of these commitments, but we haven't really named them and we haven't really talked about what are in any of them. And I think it would do everybody a service if we actually got specific and talked about one or more specifically, knowing that we don't have time to talk about all 15. I would say that one that really struck me um, was number 10, which is I commit to seeing that the opposite of my story is as true or truer than my original story. I recognize that I interpret the world around me and give my stories meaning. Somebody said in the course of this conversation about we may not realize how committed we are to being right, and we see it in the results, but staying open to not just a different side of the story, but the actual opposite of the story was really eye-opening for me. What was your reaction to that one, Nithya? What was really, really eye-opening for me was the turnaround that they talk about under that commitment. So one of the final steps or tools for exploring the opposite in the way that you're describing, Alyssa, is take something that we believe to be true about the world. The example they have here is John was unkind to me and then turn it around to the opposite. John was kind to me and then turn it around to the other person. I was unkind to John and then turn it around to yourself. I was unkind to me. And so it's a it's a mental experiment, a little bit of an exercise. But what I love about it is it seems that the purpose of it is to challenge these beliefs that we, we hold so strongly because they feel right. There's something about it feeling right in our gut that makes it hard for us to shake them. But using this turnaround tool, rather than saying, hey, you know that thing you believe to be true? What if it were wrong? It actually says rewrite thought in these two or three different ways. Say it out loud. Practice saying it. Practice just sitting there and being with it. Is that uncomfortable? Is that weird? What is that like? And uh, I, I like that a lot because I struggled with this one too, but that helped me having having something that I could actually use and write out and say, rather than just have to be with the awkward feeling of, of being wrong. It was more of a, almost like a sentence structure exercise that then I, I felt was effective for me in, in challenging things because I tried it with myself on, on something I hold to be true about uh, someone, you know, in my, in my leadership work. Yeah. And as you say that, and I look at that turnaround, I also think about the, the impact of this, not just on places where we we might find that we disagree with someone else's viewpoint, but challenging our own internal stories about ourselves and about how we structure our day. You know, the choices that we make, you've just kind of sparked something in saying, what about the opposite of my story in terms of some of the things that I say that maybe aren't the kindest to myself? And at the same time, some of the things that I say that maybe make excuses, just take some time and do that actual writing out of one story, just that one sentence, and then do that, those different turnarounds. 
could be a really enlightening experience. For me, it's a really great way of addressing the fact that we get a lot of our beliefs about how the world works, how business should be, how people function together from places that we don't interrogate particularly well. We take them as given because somebody we respect says them or because we've recognized a pattern we think or that sort of thing. But also we project, psychologists tell us we project the things that we don't want to own about ourselves onto other people all the time. And so this is a way of investigating, am I actually projecting onto John that he's unkind because I'm uncomfortable? with how I'm unkind? Or is actually there something going on that is problematic? And by asking these questions and looking at how the opposite of what we believe is true might be truer than what we thought, it opens up so much more possibility, the ability for compassion in ways that were unpredictable. I first came to the turnaround material through the work of Byron Katie who has four questions that she wants people to ask about the things they think before the turnaround. And the first one, is it true? The second one, is it really true? Which is the beginning of investigating your story. And then the third one, what is the impact on me of believing this story? And the fourth one is, who would I be without this story? Because often our sense of identity is tied up in the way that we believe the world. And so actually opening ourselves up to the possibility that the opposite of the story we've been telling ourselves is true is also true can be incredibly disconcerting because it can radically undermine our sense of certainty that we know who we are and how the world works. One of the things I really like about the Amazon description that was not a portion that I read earlier is there's a place where it says, so you're going to get shaken up and scared. So what? We all do. Once again, no judgment. But some of this stuff is radical and provocative if we haven't encountered it before. And this one is one that every time I get hooked on a story of my own, and someone says, have you asked if the opposite is true? Have you investigated? I fight it. Even though I know all this stuff, I fight it. And it's also one last little brain puzzle for me is the possibility that there are two opposite truths that can be true at the same time, because we do tend to live in a right or wrong, left or right, you know, this way or that way world. Yeah. Simply the fact that the possibilities for what is opposite are not just two, right? Nithya gave us the John is unkind to me turnaround. There were four. John is unkind to me. John is kind to me. I am unkind to John. I am unkind to me. Oh, you know, that's not just an A or B situation. In organization and relationship systems coaching, one of the things that we play with is the 2% truth. Maybe it's a stretch to think that the opposite is more true than what I believe, but what if the opposite is 2% true? What would be the wisdom I could get from that? What learning could I get from that? I love that, Kate. I've used that in leadership development work and, and in conflict resolution. And what's useful for leaders there, as you say, is that sometimes there is resistance to this idea of accepting everything about the opposite, but the 2% is a way to get in the door. It's a foot in the door to, to open up our minds a little bit. Yeah. So Nithya, I'm feeling like we've talked about this commitment quite a lot. Is there one that you want us to dive into a little bit and explore? Yes, absolutely. One that I, I like to think 
I embrace in my life, but still struggle with is commitment number nine, which says I commit to creating a life of play, improvisation and laughter. I commit to seeing all of life unfold easefully and effortlessly. I commit to maximizing my energy by honoring rest, renewal and rhythm. I really like this commitment and I want to share what they list as the below the line version of that commitment. I commit to seeing my life as serious. It requires hard work, effort and struggle. I see play and rest as distractions from effectiveness and efficiency. This one really stood out to me because if there's one thing that's true about the modern work world, particularly in corporations, it's that there is a stress bias at work. It is as if the more we are doing, the more busy we seem and stressed we look, the more we must be doing. (laughs) And it's such an unhealthy and vicious cycle. I fall into this vicious cycle myself. For instance, notice in my interpersonal interactions and work interactions that when we ask one another, how are you doing? More often than not, the response you get from the other person has the phrase, things are so busy. It's been so crazy lately, invariably. And, and that may be true. It's not, it's not that it's necessarily a lie. It's that saying the words feeds the perception and then the perception feeds behavior. And that keeps going and going and going to a point where burnout is not only possible, it's likely. And so there's a, a ton of research out there around how constant work with no rest, no relaxation, no play leads to burnout and leads to a whole host of other negative consequences. And this commitment refocuses leaders on what they say is important about play and rest. Why I like this one is that it's not just about, hey, step back and you know throw back a few beers and hang out and sleep. <laughs> Those things are, are great, I'm sure. But they really talk about the adaptive function of play and laughter and improvisation and all of these things. And granted, I have perhaps a personal bias towards this one because I do improv comedy myself. But even beyond the performance aspect of it, what it does to our brains, play that is, it rewires our brain to make new connections that weren't possible before. Things like innovation, creativity, and collaboration are actually furthered when we step back from the grind and remember to play. I love the way they describe it here, which is conscious leaders improvisationally co-create with others in a spirit of playful pleasure. Often they exert significant energy. So they are saying that this is a conscious commitment because it does require energy. It's not just kick back and do nothing. It is a commitment to creating and innovating in a different way that involves pleasure and relaxation because that actually opens up parts of our mind that would be otherwise shut down when we're just working and grinding and stressing. Yeah, this point about energy, one of the things that I love about all of these commitments is that they talk about how above the line leadership frees up energy and actually makes more energy available for doing the thing that it is that you want to do. And so taking the time for rest and renewal and play frees up energy for getting the tasks that need to happen done. I have to say, as a recovering serious person, this has been a really, really radical shift for me. And when I notice myself getting out of play and into hard work and struggle, the products that I come up with are less interesting, less responsive to what customers and clients need, and less energy producing to do. Whereas if I'm in a space of play, generating things, it's not less work, but it's much more likely to come in that from a place of ease that feels sustainable. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I love that you're mentioning the word sustainable. 
because this commitment, as with all the other commitments, are looking at long-term success for leaders rather than short-term, as we said earlier, that being a key difference between conscious and unconscious is rather than the short-term, get this done, grind away at it, check it off the list, it is what's going to produce long-term results that are interesting and meaningful and actually bring the best out of people. And I want to just call out one other thing here, which is that they mentioned that children exhibit this commitment very naturally. When we notice children at play, it is actually a very, very focused effort. And we now know from a lot of research that play for children is not merely something idle. It's actually helping them develop very important connections in their minds. And as adults, I think that because we as leaders focus on those short-term results, we lose the magic and the focus and the possibility that comes from that play. So some of this commitment is about returning to what we instinctively knew as children, but may have unlearned because of what we assume is valued or needed, but is really sapping our energy. I love this commitment. You know, I laughed, Kate, when you said as a recovering serious person, I don't know if I was ever a serious person. So this is one that I feel like most days I'm pretty good with and that it's something I try to bring into any of my work because people do need that reminder. Not everything has to be a struggle. Nithya, you said, you know, the answer to, well, things are busy or keeping busy is kind of the expected answer or the right answer so much of the time, helping people see that it's not necessarily about busy. And to what you were saying about the creativity, taking some time to go for a walk when you're mulling something over, changing your environment and putting some play into it. I teach a class about developing people in teams. And yes, there's some seriousness to it, but then I throw some stuff in there that I know startles some people from a classroom perspective. Then when I get feedback, it's always those small things that people like the best. I've seen the value of this and I'm glad to see it as a commitment. You do burn out if everything is an effort and a struggle. So how to incorporate some more of that ease into all of our lives, I think is just to everyone's benefit. You know, I think that it really, really is powerful to remember how much ease and play is a learning tool, particularly in a fast paced business world where it's easy to be like, everything's changing. We don't really know what's going on with the market. Things have happened. There's the new competitor something new is happening. It's constantly in flux and learning and adapting is hard and stressful. And if we can be playful about it, it makes it much more possible to respond. So I want to go back and look at the first commitment because the first commitment scared the bejesus out of me the first time that I heard someone say this to me. By the time I came to this book, I'd sort of gotten the concept because I got it from somewhere else. But commitment one is taking radical responsibility. And the above the line commitment is I commit to taking full responsibility for the circumstances of my life and for my physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being. I commit to supporting others to take full responsibility for their lives. And I don't know about anybody else, but the first time I heard this, I was like, but other people are to blame for things and I'm not actually in control. There's all of this stuff happens that's outside my control. I'm not willing to take the blame for all of that. So distinguishing blame from responsibility, the idea that responsibility is in what you choose to do with what is 
rather than taking the blame for what is and how we got here was a really radical shift in understanding the word responsibility that was really powerful. The below the line commitment here, I commit to blaming others and myself for what is wrong in the world. I commit to being a victim, villain, or a hero and taking more or less than 100% responsibility. I don't think of myself and I didn't think of myself as blaming others, but I would notice that in behavior. And I notice that in my client's behavior, if they're trying to make other people responsible and it takes away their choice, victim, we don't like to see ourselves as victims, even if that's sort of how we're treating villain. Nobody ever sees themselves really as the villain, but oh my goodness, was I committed to being a hero and taking more than a hundred percent of responsibility for way more of my leadership roles as a young adult than was reasonable. And so the commitment to supporting other people to take responsibility for their lives and to only taking a hundred percent of my responsibility is a piece that I don't see talked about quite so much as in the way that they present radical responsibility. Yeah, there's so much just in those first two sentences there. And I think you bring up an important distinction between control and responsibility, because yes, there are absolutely going to be things that feel beyond our control, but taking responsibility for our reaction or response or action is a huge thing. Being able to say, you know what, this happened. I can't change what happened, but I do have the choice of what happens next, what I do next. And then when you talk about that hero mentality and wanting to take a step back and committing to support others to take full responsibility. I find that to be such a topic with leaders, especially leaders who are just moving to kind of that first level of leadership where they've been really good at their jobs committing to supporting others as opposed to stepping in and showing their expertise, doing things for other people because they feel they need to prove themselves or doing things for other people because they don't like seeing them uncomfortable. And that big piece of growth for all of us in understanding that learning and growth come from that discomfort and there are ways to support without going in and taking full responsibility for someone else is just a journey I've seen over and over. And it's not like there are three steps to committing to support others to take full responsibility for their lives. It's obviously an ongoing learning and yet there are certain realizations along the way that make someone more comfortable with that. There's a reason this one is first. It's not easy. And yet the more you start grasping this and the more you start practicing this, the easier it is then to move into the other commitments. It's so hard in that place of, I have people reporting to me and my performance is going to be evaluated based on how they perform to not micromanage and not take responsibility for what should be their job, but to support them in meeting their goals in a way that is letting them do their job. It's a huge learning process. Yeah. And it's a huge learning process for organizations because even if at an individual level, leaders were to make the shift 
organizationally, it can present itself differently. So on this notion of taking radical responsibility, I love this set of questions they have here in, in the thought experiment, which is kind of what we've already been saying. What if there's no way the world should be or shouldn't be? What if the world just shows up the way the world shows up? And what if we approach that with curiosity? What can I learn from this since life is all about learning and growing? It is one thing for an individual leader to ask themselves these questions and, and try to make that shift towards radical responsibility and radical acceptance. And I think yet another thing for an organization to define its goals, its metrics, and to define success based on this, because it's a whole other question for, let's say, a leadership team or a set of decision makers to say, hey, we can set goals, we can have these metrics, we can have these targets. But what if we just see what presents itself as we all are coming here and doing our jobs every day? And rather than seeing things as a problem, see them as opportunities for learning. And what if we were to even go a step further the way they say here and say, this isn't just passively showing up for no reason. This is actually here as a gift for us as an organization. This is an opportunity for us to learn something. This is here for us. And that's a hugely powerful shift if an organization can make it. Of course, one of the challenges I see with it and why this is so foundational is because, to use the S word for a second, there is a spiritual component to that around who are we? What is our place in the world? What if we are not here to fix things and things aren't happening to us? Things are happening because they are meant to happen this way. And there is a gift in what's happening. There's a spiritual portion to that commitment. And that kind of language isn't traditionally used at organizations. But what an interesting and radical challenge for an organization to see what happens which are usually like these business challenges, right? But what if they were seen that way? It would so completely shift the way business is done, I think, for the better. You bring up the spiritual language, and there's not very much of it in this book, but there is some. I think it's where I would push back because there's a step that authors take between taking the world as an opportunity. That is a mind shift that we can take inside ourselves that gives us choice that I think is hugely, hugely powerful. If we take that extra step to this is the way that it's meant to be, that gives the universe agency, for me, in my experience, that starts putting responsibility on someone else and starts being a step back from taking radical responsibility. I think that's such an interesting perspective that going that last step actually attempts to turn it right back around to this is someone else's or something else's responsibility. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I like that. Thanks for sharing that. Shifting directions pretty radically. At the end, they talk about how change happens and they give a change formula. And I think it's worth putting a little bit of time into talking about the change formula because if these are all just grand ideas then so what? And the change formula I really found fascinating. So they talk about vision times dissatisfaction plus first steps need to be greater than resistance for change to happen. Does that resonate for you? This really resonated for me. It was a really interesting way to look at it. I know that I've been coached before where somebody says, well, when it's important enough, it'll happen. And I know that this was a way of addressing my resistance and some of the shoulds in my head. I know I should be doing this. And this to me, the vision times dissatisfaction 
gave me a different way of looking at that should. Because it's not about your vision times what the world says you should do or what all these advice books say you should do. It's, is it really causing you dissatisfaction? And then adding in that first step. So what's the first little bit of how? It's those first steps being greater than the resistance. Having all of those components felt like the concept really clicked into place. What is this grand vision? How dissatisfied am I? What's that gap between where I am now and where I want to be? And then what are some first steps? First steps themselves can be really little, but they can be huge in terms of getting over that resistance. And I think sometimes that's what we need. We get so stuck. We might see that really big vision, but feel that we need something that takes just way too much energy to make progress. So what are those first steps that can help you overcome that resistance and then kind of get some momentum going? And the first steps become second steps, become third steps. That's how the change can happen. And even if those first steps, even if those second steps have to then from the point of the equation become new first steps, you know, you have your vision, you have your dissatisfaction and your first steps, then maybe your dissatisfaction is less, but your second steps are bigger. So kind of that constant math of figuring out what you need to put together, what's that picture that has to come together to overcome the resistance. Thanks, Alyssa. I liked this formula. What stood out to me about it was firstly the concept that vision and dissatisfaction are multipliers of each other. When there is some amount of non-zero dissatisfaction with the status quo, that actually amplifies the vision. And similarly, if there is dissatisfaction with the status quo and there is a vision to go along with that, it can actually magnify the dissatisfaction in, in a productive way. For anyone listening who is as perhaps literal-minded as, as I am, <laughs> given that the formula is V times D plus FS greater than R equals C, that is vision times dissatisfaction plus first steps greater than resistance equals change. A way to think about it that may help because that greater than resistance got me a little bit. In colloquial language, it makes sense, but <laughs> mathematically can help to think about that greater than sign as, as a minus sign so that you have this vision and you have dissatisfaction that are magnifying this desire for change. And you know you take your first steps and the amount of change that is actually enacted is going to be countered by resistance. So in other words, if your vision, your dissatisfaction and your first steps are significantly greater than the resistance, then you're going to make great change. If it's only a little bit greater than the resistance, then you're going to make, you know, smaller change, not necessarily a bad thing. I think this formula paints it very much as change or no change, but I prefer to think about it as the amount of resistance can just shrink and grow and impact how much change is made and how effective that change is. And I'm saying that because I wouldn't want any listeners to hear this and think that unless there's no resistance, that change isn't possible. I think that change can happen in stages as well. And it's okay to have resistance during change too, and that it's very human and it's very normal. But you can, as Alyssa said, still take those small first steps and see something. And every subsequent change will then build on itself. It's kind of one of those things where when we start to see success and we start to see the results of taking those first steps and having that vision, then hopefully it starts to get a little bit more easier and more accessible. I love the way that we're taking the math of this and getting wisdom from it. Part of what I take from this 
is the mathematics of zero and the multipliers. So let me flesh that out a little bit. One of the ways that the resistance sometimes shows up is in an inability to come up with a vision, not knowing where the end goal is. And this formula actually gives hope in that space. Because with vision and dissatisfaction as multipliers, if there's no vision, that's a zero. And it doesn't matter how dissatisfied you are. There's nothing because zero times anything is zero, right? But this offers, in that case, first steps greater than resistance gives change. And if the resistance is just that sense of stuckness, then a little tiny first step is bigger than nothing. And so for me, when I'm working with people who don't know where they're trying to get to, they just know that this isn't working. This formula is really hopeful because it says a first step gets you moving. And when you get to that place where you've taken that first step, maybe you'll be able to see, maybe you'll get some vision to multiply with that dissatisfaction that can give you something. On the other side, what if everything's going okay right now? Dissatisfaction, like you're not really dissatisfied. And yet you see potential for more. You don't actually need to dislike the status quo to keep moving. I like that both of those possibilities are there in that formula. The final thing that they add at the end of this is they talk about willingness. And the fact is this stuff is hard and that there's this sense that you need to be willing to actually do this. My response to the concept of willingness is I'm not sure that willingness is separate than vision times dissatisfaction plus first steps. And I'm sort of curious whether you have more to that that I should learn. What I will say about willingness that might be a little bit opposite of what you were just saying, but actually goes back to kind of quoting you from the very beginning, Kate, which is that our actual commitment is something you notice in results. I think you can be bought into this great vision and you can know that you're dissatisfied and you can even have the first steps. But where the willingness comes in is the kind of, well, I tried. Saying you try is, is basically wanting to get credit for things that didn't work. So the idea that if you have this formula that you've worked out around your vision, around your dissatisfaction and your first steps, and mathematically it's greater than the resistance, but you don't actually see any results, then there's a willingness component that's missing. And that's when you then need to go back and say, I have said that this is something I've wanted to change for five years and it hasn't changed. So what's going on? And then I would probably go back to the questions that they have around, are you willing to change? And really look at, are you willing to take 100% responsibility? Are you willing to let go of being right? And the way that they parse out those questions could then help me pinpoint where is there actually a lack of willingness? And maybe there's some discussion to be had around how willingness or lack of willingness feeds into resistance or not. I'm not totally clear on kind of where the separation is, but I do think that the willingness is something to look at if you feel you've created a change formula and yet you're not seeing the results. Mm, that piece of investigating the question, if you've identified the not willingness, that's actually suggesting that you need a smaller first step because the first step is to investigate, am I actually willing to change? Yeah, it might be. I see first steps as having to be something really tactical that would produce a result. And then you're not able to do those first steps and produce some result. Then willingness as more of a concept is something to explore. For me, willingness folded directly into resistance. That if there was a willingness issue, 
then there's a resistance issue. And I like the nuance that's being added to it in this conversation, that if we're going through all of these steps in the change formula and yet change isn't happening, that's where I would explore willingness. And I think the higher willingness is, the higher commitment is, and the higher commitment is the lower resistance is. So what I'm taking away from this is that structurally, I'm happy thinking of willingness as sort of folded into the change formula with a bunch of possible ways that it might impact the change formula. And therefore, I can justify for myself that it makes sense that they put it in as a section after the change formula as a next chapter. All right. (laughs) I'm willing to justify it that way. I don't know if anybody else is. But I think that gets us to the fundamental piece here, which is learning and curiosity rather than commitment to being right. And I'm willing to leave this one out there as an I'm not quite sure what they were thinking, but I can make some sense of it that I can get some wisdom from. So it's useful. Whether I'm right or not about what they wanted me to take away from it, who knows? Kate, Um, look at you practicing this stuff right away. (laughs) I love um, it. So thinking of practicing right away, what do we think are useful thinkaways? For me, fundamentally, if the only thing that I took away from this book is that the commitment to being right gets me in trouble all the time, I would be (laughs) well worth the time having read it. For me, I think the biggest thinkaway is that awareness of above the line versus below the line and how much work it takes to be above the line and at the same time how valuable it is to be aware of where I am at any given point in time. Okay, my think away from this book is a question actually that I would invite everybody to consider. How are you receiving the things that happen? Do you find yourself seeing them as things happening to you? How much control do you feel you have? How much control do you find yourself wanting? And where are you able to let go of that and surrender, as they say in the book? So that's something to chew on. Okay. So now is the time that we have to put the book in its categories. So if leadership is a tree of wisdom and tools, is this book something that's foundational at the roots? Something that is the trunk, the main body, or is it branches and specific tools? Okay, I'll go first. It does strike me as a branches book. What's presented here, especially at the end of each chapter with the chapter summaries and the worksheets and the behaviors and the checklists are ways of putting these commitments into practice. So at least the way I see myself applying it as a leader is through the practical tools or the branches. And so this to me is more of a roots book moving into trunk because to me, this is like very specifically about at the foundation, like what are the things that are going to constantly feed into choices you make and decisions that you make? What kind of leader are you going to be? And for our metaphor, you know, what kind of tree are you going to be? And I almost can see like 15 roots feeding into this trunk. So for me, it was a roots book that moves into trunk. Interesting. When I was thinking about what category I put it in, I came up with a reason for putting it into all of the categories because there's so much in here because of how I would use this book in real life as opposed to how this book would impact my leadership in an ideal world. I put it as a roots 
book. And for me, that's because the distinction between above the line and below the line and curiosity versus commitment to being right, that seeped in and I can stand on that and use that and apply that as a general framework anywhere. And without a book group or a group of people to go through and practice each of the 15 commitments, I'm never going to sit down and actually go through all of the 15 commitments and use them as branches. This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoy the Leadership Arts Review podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. You can find more information and additional resources at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation about leadership arts in the Facebook group Leadership Arts Review or on Twitter at leadership underscore arts. Leadership Arts Review is a 4 Impalas production. Music adapted by 4 Impalas from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Gods under license.